Our second scripture reading this morning comes out of the second book from the prophet Samuel. 2 Samuel chapter 7, beginning with verse 1. Let us listen for and hear God's holy word. Now, when the king David was settled in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies around him, the king said to the prophet Nathan, See, now I am living in a house of cedar, but the ark of God stays in a tent. Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that you have in mind, for the Lord is with you. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, Are you the one to build me a house to live in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I have been moving about in a tent and a tabernacle. Wherever I have moved about among all the peoples of Israel, did I ever speak a word of any of the... A word with any of the tribal leaders of Israel, whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from the following, from following the sheep, to be prince over my people Israel. And I've been with you wherever you went, and have cut off all your enemies from before you. I will make you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them, so they may live in their own place and be disturbed no more. And evildoers shall afflict them no more, as formerly, from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. Your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Beloved, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. May your good news come, O Lord, not only in the word spoken, but in and through the power of your Holy Spirit and with full assurance. Amen. No take backs. It's just common childhood friendship etiquette, meaning that when you give something to someone, you can't take it back. Let's say hypothetically, your friend sees your brand new black and lime green checkered slap bracelet and thinks it's the coolest thing he's ever seen and offers to finally trade you his 1986 Topps Bo Jackson rookie baseball card that you've been desperately trying to swap with him for months. He can't take the card back just because he got bored with the bracelet after a couple of dozen times slapping it onto his wrist. Again, hypothetically. And hypothetically, you definitely cannot get our moms involved when I enforce the no-take-back rule to our trade and heroically stand my ground, Jeremy, hypothetically. <laughs> the rule also applies to playing tag. In my neighborhood and with my brothers, the phrase was no-tag-backs. It meant that if someone tagged you, you became it. You couldn't turn around and tag them right back. Once you were chosen, you were chosen. You were it. No tag backs. No take backs. Just common sense. Now work with me here. 
Because what I want to suggest is that this passage from 2 Samuel is the theological equivalent of no takebacks. Hear me out. Here's what's happened up until this point in our story this morning. David has been anointed king by the prophet Samuel. And he's taken leadership of the nations of Judah and Israel and has conquered Jerusalem and named it the capital city. Regime change is what we call it today. And regime change always brings with it a measure of uncertainty. Whose voices will be heard? What will the leadership's goals be? How will it maintain its position in power? So for the Israelites, things are at best uncertain. Because like every new king or president or CEO, David wants to establish his authority. He proposes to do so by building a huge temple to house the Ark of the Covenant, which to this point has been in a tabernacle or a tent, as David calls it. David announces his plans to his pastor Nathan, who serves as a a sort of conscience or moral guide throughout David's story. Nathan gives him his initial approval, but that same night, he has a dream in which he's instructed to put a stop to David's construction project. Essentially, God says to David, you want to build a house for me? Forget it. I'm building you a house. The kingdom that I'm shaping here is not what you do for me, but what I do through you. If I let you fill Jerusalem with hammers and chisels and scaffolding, before long, everyone will be caught up with what you're doing and will not know what I'm doing. This is a kingdom that we're dealing with, God says, and I'm the king. A few years ago, a friend of mine was invited to participate in a continuing education event called At Table with Brueggemann. It was a 24-hour event where all they did was literally sit around a table, my friend and about 35 other pastors, and listen to Walter Brueggemann talk about the Advent text for this year, year B, of the lectionary cycle. My friend said occasionally someone would ask a question, but they mostly just sat and listened. Because when Walter Brueggemann speaks, you listen. You've all heard me refer to Brueggemann from this pulpit often, including last week's sermon. But if you don't know him, he's a retired Old Testament professor from Columbia Seminary and a prolific writer. And he's absolutely brilliant. In fact, Brueggemann's colleagues at Columbia joke that any time he gets on an airplane, he gets off the flight with a scholarly, publishable article scribbled on the back of a cocktail napkin. And if he happens to be flying cross-country, he'll have written an entire book by the time he lands. I do not think it's an exaggeration to say that Brueggemann will be remembered as the preeminent theologian of this generation. My friend told me that at their last session together at this conference, right after breakfast on Tuesday morning, they came to the readings we just read for this fourth Sunday of Advent. Everyone was a little weary. Our brains were getting full, my friend said. They had talked about Psalm 89 and the epistle reading from Romans and the angel's visit to Mary in Luke 1. My friend said most of them had pen and paper out and occasionally scribbled a note here or there about something. 
But then someone asked Dr. Brueggemann to talk about 2 Samuel 7. There was a long silence. Brueggemann looked down at his Bible, and then he looked up at all the faces around the table. And by this time, everyone was paying attention. He took a deep breath and nodded and said, I think this is the most important theological text in the Old Testament. And bam, in a split second, 35 clergy's heads dropped down and 35 pens started scribbling. Walter Brueggemann thinks this is the most important passage in the Old Testament. My friend said that he went on to explain why. This is the passage where God establishes the house and the lineage of David. That, became, that becomes important over in Luke 1. David has been chosen by God to be the king over Israel, and God announces that David's descendants will be the line through which the Messiah will come. But the thing, Brueggemann pointed out, what really is astounding about this passage is the unconditional nature of the covenant. Up to this point, there have been lots of covenants made in the Old Testament history. There was the covenant with Abraham, I will make you a great nation. There was the covenant with Noah, build a boat, take your family and two of every kind of animal, and I will never again flood the earth. There was the covenant with Moses, I will free my people and you are to lead them out of Egypt. God has always been connected to God's people by some sort of covenant. But it usually takes the form of a legal document. Here's your part of the agreement, and here's mine. This is what the people of Israel will do, and this is what God will do. But up to this point, all the covenants have been conditional. That is, God's actions and God's promises have always rested on the people holding up their end of the bargain. If you do this, then I will be your God. If you act this way, then my blessings will be with you. If, then. It's always conditional. But here, in 2 Samuel, for the very first time, the promise is unconditional. I will not take my steadfast love from you. Period. No matter what. God will be with Israel. Not if, then, but nevertheless. There's nothing Israel can do to lose God's steadfast love. No if. Once you're chosen, you're chosen. No takebacks. That doesn't mean that it's a free pass to get away with acting any old way they want. God says in 2 Samuel, when he commits iniquity, I will punish him, but... I will not take my steadfast love from him. There will be sanctions and punishment, but they're not terminal. Your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. I don't know if we can really comprehend how startling that announcement would have been to the people of Israel. To know that God loved them no matter what, that God's favor was with them regardless of what they did. It would have been so foreign to, this whole, to their whole worldview. In the ancient Near East where the gods were assumed to control the sun and crops and rain and whatever else, to insult one of the gods or God 
was to put one's whole life and livelihood in jeopardy. It meant always living in fear of doing something wrong. But that's the whole point of the gospel, isn't it? To say that we don't have to live that way anymore, that we don't have to do anything to earn God's favor, is new. You've been justified by grace through faith, Paul says. And this is not by your own doing. It's the gift from God. No takebacks. That's exactly the news that Gabriel brings to Mary. Greetings, favored one. The Lord is with you. You are my chosen. Unconditionally. No takebacks. Church history has so idolized and idealized Mary that we imagine her as a student body president at her all-girls Catholic high school, president of the Honor Society, national merit semifinalist, voted most likely to succeed. But the likelihood is that Mary is none of those things. She's young and she's scared and she's from the wrong side of the tracks and the angel has just dropped with drop by with a bit of news that promises to throw her whole life into total scandal. Several years ago, back in seminary, I asked a friend of mine who grew up Catholic and who now teaches theology as a professor at a Catholic university, I asked if he thought Mary had a choice, if she had an option to say no to Gabriel and to God. Would God have forced Mary to have the child against her will, I wondered. And in a flash of divine wisdom, my my friend said something like, at the point of conception, Mary had already said yes long before with her life. She could have always said no with her life. What is God asking you to say yes to? In David's time, the concern was not what the people of Israel would build for God. It was what God would build through them. Mary received a visit from the angel because God had important important work to do through her. So what is the meaningful work that God wants to do through you? It may not be nearly as obvious as a nine-month pregnancy, but I bet it's every bit as significant. Maybe you're the one to invite the widower next door to join you for Christmas Eve services. Maybe you're the one to provide a gift card for bridge refugee services to distribute to a family in need. Or the one who volunteers to work the hospital on Christmas Day to give someone else the day off. Maybe you're the one who takes the initiative to say, I'm sorry, to end the conflict around the family dinner table. Mary was nobody special. An ordinary teenage girl from an insignificant town in an unimportant province of the Roman world. But the glory of Christmas comes about when ordinary people say yes to God. Because as, the case, as was the case 2,000 years ago, God's birth still requires human partners. Mary, Joseph, you and me, partners who are willing to say yes with our lives, willing to make room for the Messiah, willing to smuggle God into the world inside our own bodies, through our very lives. No take-backs. Amen.
As we have lit the candle of love, we give all our praise and thanks for love that became incarnate as the God flesh, Jesus Christ, who showed us your unconditional love. And so we pray for those who do not feel loved, those who struggle to love others, those who are desperate for love, for those who want to be recognized as human and made in the image of God. Kindle in us your love of Christ that we might bind ourselves to one another to experience the joy, hope, and peace of your eternal love. Holy One, be the light in our darkness that we might reflect your light into the dark corners of our world. Yet remind us that you walk with us even in the darkness of life, that there is nowhere we can go that you aren't with us. Hear our prayers, O God, and hear the prayer your Son taught us, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Just as God called Mary, and Mary said yes, God calls to each of us to say yes with our lives, to respond to God's goodness and grace in the many ways that we can. And one way is through our time, our talents, and our treasures. So let us worship God through our tithes and offerings. <laughs> 